0: Season 1 of Written in Stone, the 1990s, is supported by Tension Climbing, wooden training tools designed with purpose in Denver, Colorado. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, to get 10% off of your next purchase at tensionclimbing.com and to let them know that their support for this show matters. Not valid for tension board sets, hardware, or gift cards. Cannot be combined with other offers. Tensionclimbing.com Mastery over success. Written in Stone is co created by Power Company Climbing. Products, training plans, and education to help you become a better climber. PowerCompanyClimbing.com. Use the code STONE, that's S T O N E, for 20% off of almost everything. Learn, grow, excel. <laughs> April 11th, 1999 was a more or less normal spring day in Red River Gorge. Temps were actually quite good, and despite it being one of the wettest months of the year, the humidity was also fairly low. Well, for the red, that is, which actually means the humidity was fairly high. But I digress. At the Motherlode, one of the most promising crags in the country at the time, there was a small crowd of hardcore locals in the now famous Madness Cave, including philosophy professor Bill Ramsey, who'd just finished one of his projects up the middle of the massive Sandstone Cave. He noticed the young, quiet local phenom strolling into the cave and suggested to her that she should give it a try. I mean, she was running out of things to do since she'd made a habit of doing everything first try, including all of their hardest things. And when she didn't ask the grade of the new route, Bill didn't offer it. She assumed it was another 512 or something, and she casually tied in and set off. And the bouldery moves right off the ground didn't even register. And she was soon at the big horizontal break where the business, the giant, nearly 45 degree overhang, intimidating to nearly everyone, began. But she wasn't rattled. Without much rest, she continued into the steeps. On the ground, Bill and local legend Porter Gerard watched with their mouths agape. They could hardly believe what they were seeing. Before long, she was at the now famous beach, and Bill wondered how she would get through what for him had been big reaches. And she went up and down, trying different solutions as if there were dozens of potential options. And she simply had to try them all until she found the correct one. As if fatigue just didn't come into the equation. She eventually found and pulled on holds that nobody else would consider holds, making a massive move to overcome the blankness and establish on the head wall. Not far to go, but if she fell here, she certainly wouldn't be the last to do so the accumulated pump over the next decades would stop many good climbers just short of clipping the chains. But not today, not for her. She just didn't fall in these situations. Upon lowering to the ground, she learned that Bill had given the route the name Omaha Beach and the grade of 13D, making Katie Brown the first woman to on-site the grade. Katie, welcome to Written in Stone. I'm, I can't even tell you how excited I am to have you here.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Before we jump into this thing, I have a question for you. If today you and Len Hill had to have a boxing match for charity, who would win?
1: Probably Lynn.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think if Lynn and I had to have a boxing match for charity, I'd put my money on Lynn. <laughs> also, an, another totally random off-the-wall question or uh, a thought here. While I was doing research for this chat, I came across a statistic that made me laugh, and I wondered if you knew that according to the internet, you're worth $8.14 million. Are you aware of this?
1: Oh, that's really funny because I have Medicaid, <laughs> which is health insurance for poor people.
0: <laughs> uh, well, you need to have a talk with Google because they think you're worth $8 million.
1: <laughs> that would be nice, I wish.
0: <laughs> for me, this uh, chatting with you now and getting to introduce you earlier this summer at the International Climbers Festival is like a a, a real full circle moment because... You wrote the first little blurb about me that was ever in a climbing magazine mm-hmm. after <laughs> what I think was my first live performance that like wasn't just to a tiny little group of friends. Oh, um, that's funny. <laughs> so I'm like, if I if I fanboy at any point, you'll have to excuse me. <laughs> um, I know you were really young when you first came across Lynn but do you have any early memories of what you thought about her back then? Like, how did she seem to you?
1: Well, I don't remember the, I don't remember like what the actual first time was that I met her in person, um, outside of my first X games. That's the first time I remember meeting her. I'm sure I met her before that, but that was the first time I remember meeting her was when she was, um, Seeing the X games in my first year. And to me, she just kind of seemed like otherworldly, you know, just like someone who was so good that she may have been on another planet. I feel like there were other climbers that you could be like, oh, yeah, you know, they're really good because they work really hard. And that's cool. And I could see that as being achievable. Whereas Lynn was like just so good that she might as well been um, you know, an alien.
0: (laughs) Yeah, totally. I I remember the first time I met her in person, and it was at a party in the New River Gorge, and I had just recently written a song about Todd Skinner, and she she came up to me and said, are you O Dub? Are you the guy who wrote that song about Todd? And she was, she'd been drinking a little and she was like <laughs> crying on my shoulder about Todd. And I was like, what universe am I living in that <laughs> Lynn Hill is crying on my shoulder right now? Mm-hmm. Definitely one of my wildest memories from back then. Uh, was that at the same event at the X Games? Is that when she called you the? best sport climber in the history of the sport.
1: I think so, yeah.
0: I guess you didn't hear that live because she was commentating, right?
1: No, I heard it on like I heard it on TV after the fact.
0: Yeah, how did that make you feel to have the otherworldly Lynn Hill calling you the best climber in the history of the sport?
1: Well, on the one hand, I was pretty sure that it was on a teleprompter and she had just read it, <laughs> which may be true. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and um, so there was that. and then, But then on the other hand, I still feel like it's one of the most flattering compliments I've ever received, even if it was on a teleprompter. <laughs> I still appreciate it. <laughs>
0: Uh I I re- I have this very distinct memory of like the first time I realized that my climbing heroes were were real people and that they had real lives outside of climbing and that they were inspiring people beyond just climbing. Um my my wife was the nanny for Todd Skinner's children and I met her through Todd's family and she really opened my eyes to the fact that She was inspired by Todd totally outside of climbing. She wasn't a climber at all. So I'm curious, like, as your relationship with Lynn developed over the years, when did it switch from otherworldly, she might be an alien, to she's this human being? Or did it?
1: Yeah. I didn't really have heroes, per se. Mm. Um, I wasn't the kind of kid that had... You know, posters on my walls or whatever. Um, I grew up in a pretty unstable home, and I think a lot of kids who grew up that way can relate to the idea that you don't really have space in your life to look up to people. Yeah. So I never, I never um, had the hero syndrome in that way because that just wasn't really on the table for me. But at the same time. When I did meet her in person, she did come across as otherworldly. And then when I climbed with her as an adult, I still was quite intimidated by her and really wanted mm-hmm. to live up to being able to climb with her. You know, I don't know if that makes sense, but I wanted to oh, totally um, does. be good enough to be able to climb with her. So I was still like really scared and trying so hard to be good enough, you know, to be like on the same level as her. I always considered her to be a level or several levels above me because there were things that just clicked for her that Mm. when I climbed with her in Yosemite especially was the most condensed time that I had spent climbing with her. And I remember just being Pretty overwhelmed by how things just clicked for her, and she was just so good, whereas I felt like I had to figure things out, and she just seemed to know innately how to do everything
0: <laughs> yeah never never mind the fact that she'd spent a lot of years training in Yosemite,
1: <laughs> yes, but still it was. It was not like anything that I, and I had climbed with a lot of the best climbers in the world and it was still not like anything I had ever experienced. And so it was just kind of like, oh, oh my gosh, like there's no way that I'm ever going to be able to be like on par with her.
0: Yeah. Did your relationship with her stay that way? Did you ever get more comfortable, do you think?
1: Yeah, totally. But not, um... I don't. I think I was like early twenties when I climbed with her in Yosemite, and then honestly, it wasn't until before the pandemic I had started climbing again in Boulder, and I was climbing with Lena Bunch in the gym, and it really wasn't until then that I feel like I got really comfortable with her as a person, mm-hmm. and just saw her as another person, and um, it took all that you know time and maturing and becoming a parent myself and all this stuff to just kind of like shift that mentality from someone on a pedestal to just being like, oh yeah, we're friends now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I actually, I read a bunch of articles about, I mean, in preparation for, you know, putting that story together, I read a ton about Lynn and I remember reading one article uh, I believe it was about Isabel Paticia. I think is her name. And she was talking about how Lynn was really cold and that Lynn had a uh, this sort of reputation as being cold. Um, which I could understand because she's very focused and serious a lot of the time uh, <laughs> and comes across that way. But then
1: I've I don't also see her seen that way Lynn at
0: all. Right, I've seen Lynn be really goofy, <laughs> goofy. and silly <laughs> no. and and I think she probably at competitions when she was you know in that mode came across that way, and maybe Isabel Patissier also saw Lynn as like this otherworldly person
1: mm-hmm. that she
0: was a little intimidated by mm-hmm. um, but it's really the goofy, silly Lynn that stands out in my thoughts when I think of her.
1: Yeah, but I could also see, you know, people, many people have called me cold before too. And I think sometimes when you might be a little more reserved, it can come across as cold. And also I never competed with Lynn, so I never saw her when she was that focused, but I could see her being so focused that someone might perceive that as coldness. But honestly, she's like the furthest thing from cold.
0: Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. I'm, I'm glad you had the word goofy in your head, too, because that's <laughs> like... people look at me strange when I call Lynn Hill goofy. But <laughs>
1: just,
0: <laughs> that's how she acts. I love it. Um, you were just talking about climbing with her in Yosemite, and that was the west face of Leaning Tower, right?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: how did that come about first off if you didn't have this like we're friends yet relationship
1: well i kind of cold called her (laughs) um i i don't know sometimes i make kooky decisions and i really wanted to climb with another woman Mm. and she you know she's she's the one so um and she's the Yosemite climber and just someone that I thought would be super cool to be able to learn from because um, I don't didn't have much I mean I had multi-pitch experience but it's not really the same so um right even though that was like a single day climb, it's not like a multi-day thing. Um, yeah, I just thought that she would be the coolest one to try to do it with and that, and it would be a really great learning experience. And, um, yeah, I mean, no one really tops climbing a route with Lynn. So.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, have you read her, blog post her essay about climbing that with you
1: i think so it's been a long time but i'm pretty sure i read it when i was researching my book because i wanted to make sure i had all the facts from the leaning tower right because i Mm. didn't want to like i didn't want my memory to be off
0: i just read it again last night and i'm really struck by the humility that lynn writes with Mm -hmm. you know she's She's very open about this was really hard for me and, you know, I, I really just wanted to hand the lead over to Katie or, you know, she's very open with all of her, her insecurity of climbing up there or the things that she found difficult. And just reading that and thinking of the status of Lynn Hill, it, it just felt really good to read.
1: Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, it seemed like nothing was hard for her on that. And I felt like I was right. just flailing the whole time. <laughs> and she was like, <laughs> do, 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 do.
0: <laughs> I'm sure there aren't many people who've ever accused you of flailing while you <laughs> climb. I, I can't imagine that's a thing. Was there a time in your climbing because you started so young? Um, well, young for back then. Uh, these days, you know, climbers start when they're three or something.
1: That's true.
0: Um, because you started when you were young, was there a point in time where you felt like you sort of had to represent for women?
1: Um, not really. I feel like I was always just trying to survive. <laughs> and mm. I don't know if that's because I had like mental health stuff or whatnot, but. Lynn was a way better role model in that regard. Like, she, I think she really, you know, put herself in those shoes. For me, I was just like, "Oh God, how can I get to the next day?" <laughs>
0: well, I remember watching you, you know, from the time when you were, you know, thirteen or whatever in the Red River Gorge, and and as you grew up and sort of reinvented yourself uh, as a a track climber and And going and doing the West Face of Leaning Tower with Lynn. And to me, whether you were putting yourself in that role model position or not, I think it looked that way from the outside that you were this exemplary model of growing up and reinventing yourself. Um, To the point that, you know, I very distinctly remember my daughter, my oldest daughter. Um, making a book for maybe first or second grade or something uh, about you. (laughs) And (laughs) I think it had you and it had um, maybe Tori Allen and maybe Cicada Generic Mm -hmm. were like her her three role models at the time.
1: Nice.
0: Um, So I think it came across that way, whether you meant it to or not.
1: Yeah. I think I could have done a better job in that role, but, you know, live and learn.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, in hindsight, we can all do better jobs in whatever our roles are. Right. But a- as I was preparing for this and in your, uh, in your new book, uh, your new memoir, Unraveled, there's some talk about, like, um, you finding your way into – Uh, doing hair and doing makeup and how excited you were about those things and about jewelry, making jewelry. And that brought to my mind that Lynn Hill ad from the 1980s. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It was for dare perfume. Have you ever seen this?
1: No, I saw your email, but I saw we wrote it in the email, but I've never even heard of this.
0: I'm going to have to send you this photo. Okay. It's amazing. It's like Lynn Hill all done up and she's lying on the ground in kind (laughs) of this sexy pose. And she's got a a rope coiled next to her. And it was, I remember seeing it in the nineties at some point and being a little taken aback by it because I hadn't ever imagined Lynn Hill in that light. Uh Um, but it sort of opened my mind up, you know, uh, to these female athletes aren't just athletes. They're also women and mm-hmm. incredible women. Um, and it was strange that we didn't see that. Um, maybe it's normal for the way we look at athletes. I don't know. Uh, it's certainly not for normal for me now as an adult. But as a teenager, young 20-something I think it might have been. Yeah. Um, were there climbers that you looked up to in that regard uh, as far as like makeup and hair and jewelry and um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what we, the things we might attach to being womanly, whether it's correct to attach those things to it or not? Were yeah. there climbers you were looking up to or did you look totally outside of climbing in that?
1: Yeah, no, totally. Um, I was always very girly when I was little, I was very, or wanted to be very girly. It wasn't really allowed in our house so much, but, um, I always leaned towards being pretty girly and I didn't really mm-hmm. want to go climbing initially cause there were bugs. And, um, <laughs> so I always felt like a really strong desire to keep that part of me, whether it was like, Wearing, I always wore big jewelry while I was climbing or, you know, flowered shorts that matched my top or, you know, Mm -hmm. Christian would make me like verb stuff that was matching. And, um, so it was always really important to me and I did always totally notice, um, the women who seemed to figure out how to be an athlete and feminine at the same time, um, so, like Isabel Patissier was one of them. She always seemed really feminine, even though she was kind of a generation before me. I would look at her in older climbing magazines, and mm-hmm. um, so she always seemed really feminine. Um, a lot of the French climbers seemed to be able to maintain their femininity while still being strong climbers. And then um, in the red, I always I climbed with Shelley Presson, and. Mm-hmm. Um, she always seemed like she'd wear, you know, big gold hoops to the crag and have her hair done and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. And so that always stuck out to me as well.
0: Yeah, I think I remember a five ten ad with her that struck me in a similar way as the seeing the Lynn perfume ad did. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that like I, I hesitated to use the word tomboy in the episode about Lynn. Uh, and the only reason I kept it in was because she uses the word um, in describing how she was when she was younger. Mm-hmm. Because I think we tend to, at least through parts of our life, tend to think of women who are who are achieving big things in sports as tomboys. And I think that's really unfair. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious, before we jump off of here, I'm curious, as you, more recently, like just pre-pandemic, became friends with Lynn and spent more time climbing with her, was there anything about spending time with her and becoming friends that surprised you about her? Um...
1: I mean, it didn't really surprise me, but I think what one thing I noticed was um, her generosity, whether it's with her mm. time or um, helping other people or being available for other people. Or uh, she just has a very generous spirit um, within, in like a variety, you know, literally and metaphorically. I feel like she. So It didn't surprise me, but it was fun to kind of see that side of her more and then also her silly goofy side. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: For some reason, anytime I think of Lynn as goofy, I have this image of her one time at a trade show when I ran into her. She had this weird, big, like bulbous hat on. I wish I had a photo of it. It was this strange, it looked like something out of like Good Times, that TV show from the 80s that Raj would have worn. Crazy hat. I wish I had a photo. I think those
1: are like the hats they would wear in the valley in like the 70s, right? Probably. kind of old school, you know, like that classic photo of the guys in front of El Cap. I feel like whenever she wears those hats, it's that vibe
0: yep almost like an oversized paper boy type of hat Mm -hmm. yeah so funny are you climbing at all these days
1: not really um i was climbing a bunch before we moved and was really really enjoying it and um so that was kind of pre-pandemic um there's a little bouldering gym in Loveland, Colorado that we'd go to and climb with another family who had a girl Taylor's age. And um, and then I was climbing with Lena Bunch at the Boulder Rock Club. And I, found, I was just having a blast and feeling really strong. And I thought it was really cool how as an older adult, I feel like when I was younger, I didn't, I was very like, disconnected from my body and so I never I didn't really understand like maybe what was happening with your muscles when you're trying to do a certain move or whatever it's just like you can do it or you can't and um so I found it really cool coming back to climbing as an older adult figuring out like oh if I do this move and I engage this muscle I can do it more successfully and noticing all these little things that I never noticed when I was younger. Um, But then um, we moved. And part of the reason we moved was because we had hoped to open a little gem in Salida because there isn't Mm -hmm. one, but that kind of fell through. So um, nowadays there's not really a gem in Salida. There's a teeny tiny little bouldering gem, but it's not not great and um there's i don't often have a full day to yeah that i would need to go down to shelf or climb somewhere outdoors so without a gym there's not much climbing at all
0: yeah (laughs) i i feel the full day struggle i i have well i have a 25 year old daughter a three-year-old granddaughter and now i have a 16 month old daughter So, uh, so (laughs) number one, I'm surrounded by women and I, (laughs) and I love it. Um, but yeah, totally starting over. And I definitely feel the, I only have a half day or I only have a couple of hours that I can get out and try to do something. Yes. One of the things I love about Lynn is that she was both a, a really successful competitor and she's, you know, climbed some of the hardest things But she obviously also enjoys the adventure and the exploration, and she'll go out and climb on easy things. And like you said, she's really generous with her time and just enjoys climbing and spending time with people. And she finds real joy in all of it. At least that's how it seems to me watching her. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you were a dominant comp climber. But I've also heard you mention things like doing the Mathis Crest and um something about getting benighted on um something in El Dorado Canyon and uh your time in Indian Creek in Moab. So the the adventure and the exploration of climbing is also something that I know you've found joy in.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and even though you're not climbing right now a lot, I'm curious, do you think that even with all the complicated feelings wrapped up in climbing for you, do you think there will be a time when you're finding joy in it again, when it's a, a part of your life again?
1: I hope so. Right now it's just a matter of accessibility. but sure. um And otherwise, I think I would be climbing a bunch and enjoying it a lot. But um, yeah, I mean kind of coming back to climbing in my late thirties was a big shift and, um, and really fun and cool. And one of my funny, or I, I thought it was funny when, when we first started climbing again, we went to wild Iris cause it was easy. You know, it's a great spot with kids cause there's mm-hmm. all those forts in the woods and there's like no approach and, um, great camping and everything. And so, um, we were at the base of this route and some dude walked up and asked my husband about the climb we had just done and how to do it or something like that and i had just you know hung the draws and he came up and asked my <laughs> husband about it of and course. i was like but i did that like i was the one and so i thought you know how cool is it that i've gotten to experience in one lifetime Being the person who, you know, every time you go to a crag, everybody knows who you are and also the girl at the crag who, you know, (laughs) the guys assume that it was the guy that put up the top rope. I've gotten to experience these two extremes within the sport, which is, I think, pretty rare and feels, to me anyway, it feels pretty special that I get to kind of be on both ends of the spectrum. You know, hopefully, as my daughter gets older and whatnot, um I'd love to get back more into like the adventure side of climbing and just you know like big days in beautiful places, which all of those days are some of my favorite days so
0: yeah that that makes me happy to hear not that there was this guy asking your husband instead of asking you um, it was <laughs> but, just funny <laughs> <laughs> but it but it makes me happy to know that that you are still um that you still do love it and and that there's going to be time for it in the future. Um if you're ever back in Wild Iris, look me up. That's my home area. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'll I'll take you to the crags where there aren't dumb guys who, <laughs> who just assume women aren't climbing hard. I just assume there's going to be a 13-year-old girl at the crag who I want beta from.
1: Right. <laughs> totally. <I> mean,
0: <laughs> that's the norm these days. But I I can't thank you enough for taking the time to chat with me today and you know learning to climb in the red myself you've always been a source of inspiration for me including especially including in all the ways that you've reimagined and reinvented yourself i you know Thanks. as a a kid who didn't have the greatest home life myself i know how difficult that is and especially how difficult it is to do it in a public way like you've done with your book yeah, And for me, when your daughter introduced herself to me, immediately told me she was a Swifty yeah. and was <laughs> dancing around. That was the highlight moment of my entire summer.
1: Yeah, she's very comfortable with herself, which is very important to me.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. Great. <laughs> Thanks for doing this, Katie.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: All right, Written in Stone is produced by me, Chris Hampton, with help from Riley Rush and Emily Holland for Plug Tone Audio, a group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. At the link in your show notes, you'll find all the things you expect, including a link to Katie's must-read memoir, Unraveled, and probably some things you don't expect. And look, this show is 100% rooted in the facts, but like Todd Skinner always said... Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. If you love what you're hearing, give us those five stars and a glowing review and tell everyone you know at the crag, at the gym, follow the pod on your friends' phones and share it all over your social medias and together we can tell the stories of climbing's most important ascents, one decade at a time. Stoners, this is our secret club. See, I told you I was going <laughs> to fanboy through that entire conversation. Um, but I do love hearing from Katie and and I, I really love the, like, the um, contradiction of she doesn't really have heroes, but Lynn might be an alien because she's otherworldly. Um I just love that to know that someone at the, you know, the caliber of Katie Brown once called the the best sport climber in the history of the sport by quite possibly the best female climber in the history of the sport or the most important female climber in the history of the sport, Lynn Hill, um, hearing that they think other climbers are otherworldly is really fantastic for me and hopefully this these first two episodes are a good you know taste of what's to come it's essentially every week you're going to get an episode for the next few months actually and it will go story episode and then a week conversation episode with with a pro or a top climber who has been inspired by that ascent or that climber. And then we'll follow that up with another story. Um, There are going to be some bonus conversations thrown in there. We're going to double up occasionally. One of those is coming soon. Um, But next week is a story episode about uh, one of the most important ascents ever, Um, Not just for the 90s, but ever. It's still talked about today and hotly debated today. Um, And it is the story of a British superstar launching himself into orbit. And maybe most exciting for me is that in the lead up, he does something that sets off a domino effect that will reverberate through uh, several episodes of this season, including uh, one or two bonus episodes that are coming that are some of the most fascinating pieces of the 1990s for me. All right. Again, thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.